want you to open your Bible this morning to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 23. These are some of the most familiar verses in the entire book of Galatians, verses 16 down through verse 26. I'm going to read all of them, though I suppose we're only going to make a little bit of progress this morning. But I want to read them all together. Paul says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the thing that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in both preaching and hearing that you would be praised in it all. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning about the war within you. The war that rages within you even now. Even now as you're trying to discipline your mind and your heart to heed the things of of God through His Word, there is that within you that is distracting you and is enticing you to think about other things, to give your mind to something else. This battle that rages is well defined in these verses for us, and it's a reflection of what Paul himself would write of his own experience in another place, that being Romans chapter 7. I want to read you a few verses there, but before I do, I want to preface it by saying I realize that there are some who take what Paul says there in Romans chapter 7 as referring to Paul prior to his conversion. And then there are some like myself who believe what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 7 is his life after his conversion. The struggle that he is dealing with is a struggle that every Christian deals with. And a portion of what he says there in Romans chapter 7 is this in verse 21. He says, I find then a law. Here's the law. Evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. And you might remember those verses that we didn't read 
Paul goes through that list of things, I want to do this, but I do that. And he expresses for us what we all know so well to be the real experience of life. He goes on in Romans 7, 22, when he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It is this war within us that we give our attention to this morning. And I want you to see first, before we get involved in this, Scripture by its very nature because it is the Word of God, inspired of Him, breathed out to us, is profitable for us in several different ways, isn't it? And so Scripture is going to prove itself in that fashion here again this morning, because in these verses, there is encouragement to be found by the Christian who is struggling hard against sin. If that's who you are, And you are struggling hard to put to death, to mortify the deeds of the body, to seek to put off the old man and put on the new, then you need to know that that struggle is normal and it never ends in this life. Some people need to hear that. Some people have been taught or either supposed that there is going to be a time and period in their life when the struggle against sin is going to be over. And you will, quote, have arrived as a Christian. Not the case. The reason it's not the case is because of this issue, this doctrine of remaining sin, of which I'll speak more a little later. But not only is there encouragement here for the Christian struggling hard against sin, there is help here for the Christian who is struggling with assurance of his own salvation or her own salvation. Now, the Scriptures will primarily point you to the object of your faith and his perfection and his righteousness as being the primary means of your assurance. And that's where I would primarily point you. But also, I think in these verses, there is assurance for those who are struggling, who ask questions like this. This is a question that I've asked myself. I'm sure you've asked yourself often. If I am truly Christian, why do I still fill in the blank? You ever wondered that to yourself? The reason that you still struggle with whatever that is, is because of the sin that remains in your life. Now, let's be clear. Our sin has been paid for. We have been ransomed. We have been redeemed. We have been atoned for. We are no longer responsible before God for the penalty of it. But in the wisdom of God, in saving man, He has not completely eradicated us yet of sin's power. 
Now, thankfully, there is a coming day, and that's one of the reasons why we yearn for this coming day, when sin's power is going to be completely eradicated and remaining sin will be no more. It will be a thing of the past. There is no sin where we are going. And our final destination as Christians, glory in heaven with Jesus Christ for all eternity, there is no sin. But for now, we struggle with it. We seek to put it in its right place. The scriptures are full of admonitions to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to seek to kill it, put it to death in the practical sphere. And it is to that issue that Paul writes the words that we read together this morning. But there's one other aspect of this that I want to be sure to mention. There is rebuke here for the professing Christian who has abandoned the fight against sin. If you've just thrown your hands up in the air and given up and says, what's the point? What's the use? I'll never have victory over this. Then there is a rebuke here for someone with that mindset. I think we could go so far as even to say that there is a warning here for someone who has adopted that mindset. So all of this and much more await us in these verses. But I want to remind you of the context in which these verses have come to us. And I realize I'm probably the foremost to pull this passage right off the page and to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, and all of those kinds of things, and not really see what has naturally led Paul to this place. And what has naturally led him here in Galatians chapter 5 as a whole he has begun to outline in detail what it means to live the Christian life. And as you make your way through the fifth chapter, which we've done in prior weeks, you get down into verses 11, 12, 13, and following, where Paul begins to give the exhortation or command to love one another, to love your neighbor even as yourself. And this is just on the heels of his reminding that we are free in Christ. We are free to serve one another. Then he tells them, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So in context, these verses about the works of the flesh, the inward struggle, the lusting of the spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, all of this comes as Paul's encouragement and instruction on how to love your neighbor as yourself, how to freely serve one another in love. I want you to see the flow of this before we get too involved in the particular words of verse 16. And what I mean by flow in, in these last verses that we've just read, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, beware. And then Paul says in verse 16, so I say then. And he begins to give instruction on this inner struggle 
and he moves to the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, and he ends by saying, let us not become conceited or provoking one another or envying one another. That's the flow of this whole paragraph. So now let's get involved in the particulars of it. The first point that I want to make here is the reality of this inward war. You can't deny it. This is not one of those things that you can just wish will go away or is not real in the first place. This is not a bad dream that you're going to wake up from one day and realize it has all been just a dream. This is the reality of every Christian. As we experience the beginnings of grace and the remaining of sin, these things having now come head to head, Paul tells us how to deal with this. And that's what he means by these first three words, I say then. These are his authoritative words of how to love your neighbor and not bite and devour one another. Before I talk about walking in the Spirit, I want to talk about the participants of this war. There are only two, the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh here represents that corrupt and carnal part of us that remains. We call it remaining sin. Paul calls it the old man that must be put off. The other participant here is the spirit. And I'm going to preach through these verses as, as if it is the Holy Spirit here referenced. I think it is. Even though I think... There is a a bit of this that represents that renewed part of us that was created by the Holy Spirit. These are the participants in this war. Remaining sin and what the Spirit of God is producing in us. The sphere of this war, the ring, if you want to call it that, is the Christian life. The unbeliever knows nothing of this struggle. That's an important point and one that I want to clarify. The lust of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh speaks to more than the pricking of the conscience that an unbeliever will experience. It speaks to more than the momentary and fleeting guilt that an unbeliever experiences as a result of the law of God being written on their heart. This is something totally and altogether different than a guilty conscience or momentary and fleeting guilt. The reason that I say that is because the conscience, the Bible tells us, can be hardened. It can even become seared over so that it is no longer perceptible to the things of God. And so the sphere here again is in the life of a believer. This is where the battle really rages and it's intense. I want to talk to you about the word lust as Paul uses it here. The word lust when he says 
the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is an intense desire, an intense craving or longing that is carried out with real vigor and strength. This is no game. Notice what Paul says. The flesh lusts against the spirit. And the spirit lusts against the flesh. That's an important part of this that I don't think we often consider. Often when we hear the word lust, we run to some type of depravity. But notice that the spirit is also lusting in this verse. The spirit lusts against the flesh. So that these two are contrary to one another. The word lust here, this intense and vigorous craving, while we often apply it to the flesh, lusting after the works of the flesh, See here the second part of this truth. The Spirit of God intensely longs for the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in your life. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. There are different ways that this is translated. I'm going to point those out to you. Because this is an important aspect of this. The King James, I want to give you first, those of you who read the King James, says that this lust is so strong, flesh for spirit, spirit for flesh, that you cannot do the things that you would do. The other translations, what I read to you, New King James and New American Standard say that you do not do or that you may not do. And there's two different ways of looking at even this. This is either the flesh overpowering the spirit so that you don't do the good you want to do, or it is the spirit overpowering the flesh so that you do not do all the evil that you could do. One of the two, probably both. But that phrase speaks to the reality of this war. Just like in a real, actual war, there is blood, bodies, and bricks, all of those kind of things that give evidence to the real struggle. In this spiritual war, there are not things that we can perceive with the eye, but there are certainly things that we feel. You've felt this struggle before, haven't you? In some, in some way, in some form, you have adopted those words of Paul in Romans chapter 7. You have backed away from something that you have struggled with and you've just hung your head down and you've said, Oh, wretched man that I am. I want to do the good thing. But so often, I do the wrong thing. Even the evil or the bad thing. What's that to be attributed to? The weakness of your flesh? Yes, to some degree. But it's to be attributed to this intense lusting of flesh and spirit and spirit after the flesh. So I'm thankful, as I know that you are as well, that Paul didn't just detail for us this great inward struggle, but he actually prescribed a means to be able to 
to deal with it and make real progress in the Christian life. To make real progress in the realm of being sanctified. And hear me carefully here. Sanctification is a cooperative effort. It's unlike justification. Justification or being made right with God is all God working for you. You and I contribute nothing to that. Sanctification, on the other hand, we cooperate. We either discipline ourselves or we don't. We either choose not to do something and to do something else or we don't. So this is what is at stake and what is the issue here. And the plan that Paul prescribes for dealing with this battle or this war is in verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. If you just glance down at the page and go through verse 26, what you're going to notice is that Paul repeats this. He says, walk in the Spirit, be led of the Spirit, live in the Spirit. And he closes again by saying, walk in the Spirit. And this is Paul's way of saying, live life in the Spirit. And this again is either referring to the Holy Spirit that now resides in the life of a believer or it is that principle of grace implanted in the soul by the Holy Spirit. There's really no stark line of separation that can be made there. But what Paul means is to be guided, influenced, and submissive to the leading of the Spirit in your life. And here is what he attaches to this. And then you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We should be thankful for those words. To fulfill the lust of the flesh, the word fulfill there means to give it its full run. To carry it out to the last degree. But Paul is saying, if you walk in the Spirit, this will not happen. So what's the obvious question here? How do I walk in the Spirit? What does that mean? I want to do it. Wouldn't it be nice if Paul had then said, first, this, second, third, all of those types of things? Well, he hasn't spelled it out that easily or simply for us in these verses, but when we look at the entirety of Scripture, what we find is that there is a prescription for walking in the Spirit. There is the ABC or 123 aspect of life in the Spirit. First and primarily, this points to living an undivided life. You cannot have a faithful Christian walk and have a life divided over things sacred and things secular. It just doesn't work. You can't have your church life and your other life. It just doesn't work. Everything about you and your ambitions, the way you use what God has given you, your stewardship must be pointing in the same direction. There is no 
dichotomy in the Christian life. It's all one package. Let me read you something that Matthew Henry said about this. He said, the best antidote against the poison of sin is to walk in the Spirit, to be much in conversing with spiritual things, to mind the things of the soul, which is the spiritual part of man, more than those of the body, which is his carnal part, to commit ourselves to the guidance of the Word wherein the Holy Spirit makes known the will of God concerning us. Now notice that this is something that is going to require effort. You walked in here this morning and it required effort. Some more so than for others, right? But this is something that is intentionally done. Just like the physical walk, the spiritual walk is intentional. To walk in the Spirit means, at least in part, to give yourself to the means of grace that God has provided. And by means of grace, I mean those things that God uses to dispense grace to His people. Things like reading the Scripture, studying the Scripture, meditating upon it. Even as Psalm 1 would direct us to, spending time in prayer and being a part of the Lord's church. This is life lived and walking in the Spirit. And if you are serious, serious-minded and want to fight this battle well, then we would heed these means of grace. Now, let me just speak very clearly. And I would ask you to listen carefully. Your faithful attendance in the meeting of Christ's church is to your great benefit. We don't come to be seen. We don't come to be counted. We come to receive from the hand of God that which is necessary in our life if we are to make any real faithful progress in this war that rages within us. This is one of the things that I don't think many of us take seriously enough. Is the place of the Lord the place of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of a Christian. Far too often in scripture we read where Paul attaches love for Christ and love for the brethren. Far too often it is presented as a necessity in the Christian life. And you feel its absence, most likely, in those seasons of life where you have neglected the church to your own demise. You feel that your ability to fight in this war has been diminished and it's been weakened. You feel the overpowering Forces of the lust of the flesh against the spirit and you feel as you are being left increasingly powerless to fight against it. I'm not saying, you didn't hear me say, that you're not Christian if you don't faithfully attend the church. But what you are hearing me say 
is you are a weak Christian. You are one that is endangering yourself by not taking full advantage of, and yes, there is an element here of obedience of what the church of Jesus Christ has to offer. Might I remind you that the bride of Christ, let me say that this way, you individually are not the bride of Christ. I hear people say that from time to time. I am the church. No, you're not. The church is a body. It's a collective group of redeemed people. The church, plural, is the bride of Christ. It is the church, plural, for which he died, for which he is going to return, for which he is even now preparing for himself. And I realize our American culture, we're so influenced by it. We are such individualists that we have allowed that to creep into our views of what it means to be a part or a member, to use Paul's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, members of one another. In the wisdom of God, he has supplied for me and all of you what I lack and vice versa. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. But what the eye says to the hand is, I greatly need you. And so to walk in the Spirit, to some degree means, and I think a great degree, that we realize and recognize our need for the means of grace God has provided, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being one of those means. Psalm chapter 1, for instance. If you would turn there with me briefly. Psalm 1 speaks of the necessity of right conversation and right company. Psalm chapter 1 describes the blessedness of the man who is not walking in the counsel of the ungodly or standing in the path of sinners nor sitting in the seat of the scornful. All of those things we can apply Paul's words here and see that these are not representative of walking in the Spirit. This is walking in worldliness, walking in worldly thought, worldly deed. And the blessed man is the one who is not involving himself in this. But in the second verse, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This is the man or the woman that is walking in the Spirit, meditating upon the Word of God, associating with the right people. Paul would write to the Corinthians again, bad company corrupts good morals. So back in Galatians chapter 5, 
Read that verse again, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You have freedom to fight this fight. To be led of the Holy Spirit, notice what Paul says, is to no longer be under the law. But I think we need to understand even that phrase rightly. We are no longer under the condemning power of the law. Yet we remain under its commanding power. It still serves us and tells us how to live under the glory of God. Why? Because all of those aspects of the moral law of God represented in the Ten Commandments are reflections of His character. Why are we told not to lie? Because God doesn't lie. And you can carry that line of thinking down throughout all of those. So in conclusion, I want you to to realize something. And as we begin, whether this has been an encouragement, a rebuke, a warning, a help, all of those things, walking in the Spirit requires that you stay on the battlefield. Cowards run and hide, don't they? Find a rock and get behind it. Hope that the storm will pass. But someone who is intent upon living a life that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to God stays in the fight with the weapons that the Lord has given and he fights. He does battle. Because next week when we read verse 19 again and we see the works of the flesh which are evident that word means they're clearly seen there's no question about to their nature or where they spring from when we read through that list and we look at some of them individually and then we see the outcome of that in the 21st verse then what we're going to realize and see is the greatness of what we have been saved from and the desperate, desperate condition we were in before the Lord intervened. And so it's in gratitude and with hearts filled with thanksgiving, recognizing that He has taken us out of verses 19 through 21 and put us in verse 22. that we find the desire and even the ambition to remain in the fight of walking in the Spirit. All of this into the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and 
Pray, Lord, that you would use the feeble attempt of preaching it in the lives of your people, that we would be encouraged, that we would see, Lord, that this is a normal, necessary part of our lives as Christians. We thank you for your help. We thank you for the means of grace that you have given to us. Help us to avail ourselves of them, to read and study the scripture, to meditate upon it, to spend time in prayer, to fellowship with other believers, to give ourselves into the ministry of the body of Christ and serving one another. Lord, help us to be faithful in all of these things. Lord, help us to increasingly understand what it means and how to walk in the Spirit. And we're thankful that we can say with Paul, even on those days and hours when we feel the wretchedness of the old man within us, and we can ask the question, who, who will deliver me ultimately and finally from this body of death? And we can point to Christ and say, He will. He will. Lord, we pray and ask your blessings upon this word that you would help us, Lord, to hear it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.